Cheers to Mike Diamond. How you like Cheers, that? Cheers, brother. Look at that. <laughs> Welcome to Office Hours. How are you? I'm good. No, All right. Good. We got we got a very patient guest coming on on Weird Wednesdays. Uh, Scott Shute. He is uh, LinkedIn's head of mindfulness and compassion programs. Uh and welcome is in all seriousness. And of course, the author of The Full Body, yes. Great to see you. You look like a movie star on here. You're, you're <laughs> upping, awesome. Well, up thanks level, for having me. Up-leveling our LinkedIn Live here. This is amazing. <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing because Mike and I both are into mindfulness. You know, obviously, I'm a 16-year journey started with someone who was so resistant to mindfulness and meditation. Uh, someone who for 16 years had been meditating 20 minutes a day without uh, stopping and writing books on it and surrounding myself. In fact, today's the first day of the Transformational Leadership Council uh, with Jack Canfield, myself, Bob Proctor, Reverend Beckwith. I mean, the, the heavy hitters of the secret. Um, how has LinkedIn of all places, uh, you know, aligned itself in the head of mindfulness and compassion, uh, you know, when Kwame created this stuff, I think it was very business like I was uh, focused. And it seems as if now that has moved to being open-minded and utilizing a much higher source of power. How has that reconciliation occurred? Well, I can tell you a little bit about how this job came to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I have this career as an executive. I was the global, I was the head of global customer operations at LinkedIn. It was kind of all the customer facing stuff that's not sales. But there's also this part of me that's had a practice since I was 13. I've been teaching since I was in college. Um, and I got to LinkedIn nine years ago and realized, wow, this is such an open place. Our CEO at the time, Jeff Wiener, was talking about his own practice, talking about compassion. And I thought maybe it's a place where I can bring my own practice. Right. So after I got over all the fear and ego about all of that, what are people going to think of me? I led a practice, right? On 4.30 and on Thursday afternoon in the, get this, the heavenly conference room, which I thought was uh, very auspicious. Did, did, Eric, then, Lee, did Eric Lee show up? <laughs> did not see him. <laughs> no. And it just became a regular thing. And over time, um, I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor, still you know, in my old role, and then just turned it into a full-time thing about three years ago. Or the impetus was, or the turning point for me was I saw Jeff gave the commencement address at Wharton. You know, he talked about being compassionate. And then he's on TV the next two or three times, and this is all the reporters want to talk about. So it seemed like a good time. Let's, let's make this something that we're really talking about. How do, you, how do you operationalize compassion? So I made a pitch to Jeff, our head of HR, and three years ago created this role. And so it's we're amazing. trying to mainstream mindfulness and operationalize compassion. And what's funny is the book itself basically allows you to teach or empower people to evolve to exactly what you are capable of doing. And I assume aligns it with, you know, what most people are most surprised about. And I wrote a book called Compassionate Capitalism uh, is how much of an economic gain occurs. And I'm going to share a quick story with you because I'm sure I appreciate it. I, I did a, uh, I, I studied data energy quantum healing in India. And I came back and I did a, a money workshop and I told my business partner, I said, it's amazing, man. I just shifted my energy with money and my mind with, with money. And I doubled the amount of money I made. And he goes, Oh my goodness. He's much more enlightened than I was at the time. He goes, that's amazing. We had a hundred employees at the time. 
we should do a workshop for everyone in our company to do the same workshop. And of course, this is where the disconnect, and this is why your book's so important, because I immediately went back to the corporate mindset of, I can't afford to do that. We'd have to take everybody out of the field, <laughs> right? And he's looking at me, he's looking at me going, dude, if you double the amount of money you make in productivity, what if we double the productivity of a hundred employees? Who cares what it costs? And yeah, right. It, it was a, and this is the reconciliation and the importance of your book of the full body, yes, changing your work and world inside out, giving meaning to everything you see, believing and seeing things differently. Um, what was the major, you know, for you transition of being in a very corporate job at a very corporate company and, you know, saying to yourself, wait, I'm getting caught back into the old mindset mm. of, of the corporate world in this aspect? Is there a story that you could share either from the book or outside of it of, even the greatest minds, the people who are in practice every day, we slip and we forget, you know, the bigger picture. Oh, sure. Well, I think one of the challenges still, which is a growth edge for me, is how do you balance striving and trying to achieve and trying to get stuff done in the world with this idea of you have to let it go, right? Because there's what you're in charge of, what we're in charge of, and then the universe happens. And I can't control what the universe does, right? So... So even now, right, I wrote this book and uh, I have wildly optimistic expectations of what we're going to happen. I'm going to hit refresh on Amazon every 20 minutes to see what my numbers are. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's, it, it, you don't have any control over that. All I can do is my part of it. And I think this is one of the hardest lessons that each of us go through. Like what's ours to do? And then do we, what do we turn over to the universe? Yeah, the blend. I call it the blend, right? It's like, how do I mix the law of Goya, getting off my ass, with the law of attraction and allowance? And there's this blend of, so you don't have any goals? No, no, I, I have goals, but I also allow it to have, like, faith yeah. intertwines itself into like, hey, shit didn't work out, but faith tells me, my spirituality tells me it's because something better is coming. That's the only way I can explain it to people. Sorry, yeah. Mikey. Yeah. I interrupted right. you. No, don't be silly. Scott, do you reckon, you know, practicing myself as an addict, mindfulness all the time when I'm eating, when I'm running, getting out of my sympathetic nervous system, do you find that because once you've done it for a long time, it, then it's even harder because you start to think, get complacent, like, well, I'm, I'm really good at this, but you're not because you've <laughs> got to be doing it every day, every moment. Do you know what I'm for saying? Sure. Like it, it starts to mess with you. And then like you say, the detachment is the hardest thing. Because you come out of like a meditation or a manifestation meditation, and then you try to detach from the results, but in the back of your mind, you're still ruminating on the results. Totally. So, totally. so what do you, what do it's, you, what techniques do you use with that kind of stuff? I think it's like any other habit, right? You like if you get in shape, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm in shape. I don't need to work out quite as hard as I used to. And then, then you find yourself with that pudge around the middle. Same thing, right? When I find myself having a bad day, I'm using air quotes, like it's what the bad day is between my ears. I ask myself, wow, have you put in the, have you put in the work? And the answer is always no, right? The answer is I've, I've been sliding. So for me, I notice when I don't do it. So it's kind of that constant, like, I just, I've been on and off of the wagon, you know, so long that I just know that I'm a better version of myself. And so, so when I have that bad day, it's kind of that trigger or that reminder, like, hey, come on, get back on that wagon, do the work. It's so funny. We did a TV show called Office Hours for Bloomberg just last week, and I had Sadhguru on. 
And I started off with a question, you know, how do you dummy down your shit for the masses? And because uh, he's so super enlightened, right? And he yeah. looks different. And he and I, I think about, you know, the mainstream mindfulness that you talk about in your book. Um, and I- That's Uh-oh. weird. He said the mainstream mindfulness in your book. So I think <laughs> what he was trying to lead on to is how do you bring it down so most people right. can understand it? Here he is. Did you just, yeah, right. did you just sure. drop that? Somebody didn't was, pay the internet. Someone didn't pay the internet bill, man. Things are going hard here. They, so uh, you said you, you said see all the producers outside. They're like lining up Matt and all these guys. Like, what happened? Um, <laughs> but so I actually did a real TV show. We didn't break off. Uh, and um, but but this whole mainstream idea. But yeah. what I found more interesting is operationalized compassion. Sure. See, I think it's obvious to people that is becoming more mainstream to meditate to be mindful. But compassion is a whole different animal, and to combine oper- the operation side, right. the pragmatic, you know, facility sure. manager of compassion. I'm really curious. What are some of the aspects yeah. of how you operationalize compassion? Cool. Well, let's start with the definition of compassion. There's lots of good ones out there. Here's one I use. It has three parts: awareness of other people, a mindset of wishing the best for them, and then the courage to take action. And that's easy to see in kind of the individual person-to-person relationships. But what I really want to get to is how do businesses have that same ethos with customers or with their employees? So as an example, here's some things that happen at LinkedIn. Our head of sales will stand in front of five or 6,000 salespeople at annual kickoff and say, look, our job as salespeople is to provide long-term value. So don't sell something they don't need at the end of the quarter just so you can hit your quota right? It's like anytime we're moving from just me thinking or company or bottom line thinking to the we that includes our employees and includes our customers and our bottom line, that's when we're getting towards the goodness. How, how do you, in you know, coming from that realm, how do you tell a, a salesperson who you've created a comp plan for and said, look, I'm incentivizing you with money, a currency, an object of energy that we put into the flow to get what you want, but I've created this for you, but don't use it because we don't want you to close deals at the end of the quarter with the comp plan that we set, with the objectives we set. And guess what? If you don't achieve what we want you to achieve, you're going to lose your job and not be able to pay for the pony in the backyard and the diamond ring and the trip around the world, which is right. And I find it so almost hypocritical of running huge sales forces myself when I became more mindful and compassionate to you know, talk about, you know, managing and, and developing expectations correctly and being compassionate and empathetic uh, when I've created a plan that was incentivized by the pony in the backyard, the diamond ring and the trip around totally, the world. Totally. That is where this gets super tricky, right? Because you can have this ethos at the high level and the leader can say something like that. But unless you build the systems and processes in all the way down to the bottom, it falls apart somewhere, right? And so it's, it relies on the conversations at the manager level, at the frontline manager level. Like, what are you actually doing with your accounts? And if, but if you created a system where the salesperson gets fired after two times of not missing their number, mm, it's going to be hard to get there. So the processes and systems have to be built to match the ethos. And to be honest, it's sometimes harder, right? It's sometimes harder because just like in life, just back to what we were talking about before, it's sometimes hard to do it in the moment, 
the thing that's good for us long term when it's so much easier to have a short term gain. Like I'd rather watch TV than go meditate sometimes or I'd rather eat a bag of chips than the, the broccoli or whatever is good for me. But if I do the thing that's good for me long term, we all win. That's true in my personal life. It's also true in business. It's harder, right? So it takes some real buy-in across the organization to build the systems to make that happen. Yeah. Do you think a lot of big corporations... Sorry, Matt, Dave, go. No, you got it, go. Do you think a lot of big corporations can adapt to that philosophy and thinking or they just, because, you know, you see it, like the great thing now, like I just got approved to do a, a program with um, a continuation school and it's emotional intelligence, mindfulness based, going in with these young kids. And the first thing they asked me, they're like, are you willing to put in the work with these kids? Cause they're being pushed aside. I'm like, well, I was pushed aside. Yeah. They're like, I'm like, why would you ask me that? And I go, because a lot of people come in here and once they start working with these kids, they don't want to do the program. You know what I'm saying? So I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. like you said, it's like lip service. Yeah. So what's the point where, where we have to draw that line and say, come on, we need to really implement yeah. this, this compassion. It's really interesting because the research shows that this works. By this, I mean acting compassionately. It works at the individual level, the team level, the company level. The guys who wrote Firms of Endearment, Conscious Capitalism, the research shows that companies who take care of everybody, who take their, in other words, all of their stakeholders, their customers, their employees, and the bottom line, versus just their shareholders, they're actually more profitable. They're 14 times, 1,400% more profitable. So the research is there, but, it's, but why it's hard is it's just like human behavior. How much research do you already know about physical health? Everybody knows the recipe for diet. Everybody knows that, but it's still extraordinarily hard to leave alone the piece of chocolate cake, right? When we're, when we're trying to save it, it's just so much easier to fall to the lowest common denominator. That's, that's the why it's hard. So what does it take for us to move past? I think that's where each of our individual work eventually gets to the point where the leader says, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't lead the company like this. We've got to do things differently. You know, so interesting because I <clears throat> re-engineered my entire business with this philosophy that you are teaching. And the reason is, and it applies to addiction, Mike, especially, is that segmentation, compound interest, and acceleration are determinative upon the human senses realizing results. So in other words, that negative behavior works in the favor of segmentation and compound interest. Because if you go eat uh, and drink a lot, well, it doesn't compound itself. So you don't see results. For example, if you take things take 20 years to accumulate to 100% of the problem. Well, it's not until year 18 that you're 25% of the way into a problem or into a positive result. And so in that segmentation, you're not even aware that drinking or drugs have any effect on you until you're 18 years or 18 segments in. Well, positive behavior, and, and here's the thing, you don't have an expectation of a result when you have negative behavior, like short selling somebody, overselling someone, back end selling someone, lying or manipulating to hit your number at the end of the term or end of the, the quarter. Whereupon, when we have positive behavior, we expect that instant result, right? You know, I've been working really hard. So therefore, you know, at the end of the quarter, that should show up. Well, no, that's not how it works. It could be 18 years when you're, you know, I work with entrepreneurs and I always tell them 
it works in the negative behaviors favor. And so what I did is try to construct instead of the result oriented attachment of emotions to an end number, have faith in the 1400% as a leader. Mm -hmm. And why and how I do that is I'm going to bonus you for gratitude, for forgiveness, for accountability, Mm -hmm. for productivity and accessibility with and combined in the context. So your number has nothing to do with it. And so then I created context of people who pay attention to the right things and give intention to the right things. The coincidences will occur for them. And I'm going to not be a hypocrite. If they occur three years from now, they're still going to be with me and they'll benefit from it. But I'm going to bonus people for being a student of their calendar because I know they're paying attention and intention to the coincidences they want or doing on the spectrum, being as honest as they can. So I bonus people when there's not any complaints about overselling, backend selling. Just when someone says, you know, your employee was accountable, they made a mistake. I give a dummy tax award, Scott. I I ask everyone to tell me what the biggest mistake they made in front of everyone and what lesson they learned. And whoever learned what I think is the most valuable lesson, I pay them. That's beautiful. I encourage it. And I think that's the transition that I was capable of making because of people who write books like you that have developed and had the cojones to go to someone like Jeff and say, hey, man, this is an important role that I'd like to fill. And to his credit, man, congratulations, because most executives would have laughed you right out of their office and gone back to shareholder value. Uh, and you know that's why LinkedIn is what they are today, because of people like you. I need to have you back on more shows. Uh, you know, you are just a terrific person with the right perspective. Everybody go out by the full body. Yes. They can go to your website, scottshoot.com or to Amazon, uh, pick up that book, go to his LinkedIn. I'm sure he has plenty of links there as well. Uh, keep up the great work. Come back, visit us. We have tons of different shows. Uh, we're, we're going to promote the heck out of you and your book. You you get it, my friend. And thank you for allowing us to be uh, human as well here and have a lot of fun with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to see you guys. Awesome. Say hi to everyone over there. Take care. Take care. Bye. The great Scott Shute, LinkedIn's head of mindfulness and compassion programs. Just giving you a little indication of where values sit within certain companies and why they're experiencing the 1,400% success growth that companies that are compassionate do uh, receive. And it's been a faithful decision I've made over the last you know, 16 years in building and developing. And I wrote my book, Compassionate Capitalism, based off of the exact things uh, that Scott has learned and he teaches as well. And Mike, you do the same. All right, rocking and rolling on Wednesday. Uh, We'll try to be a little bit more serious. Uh, Joan's (laughs) back there waiting for us. Uh, Joan Rabbits, she's the COO of Fusion and uh, would love to learn more about fusion and how it relates to goal building and we're talking about detaching our emotions from outcome so joan the first question i have for you is in what you do how do emotions uh pertain to what you teach and how you do it with fusion how do emotions (laughs) oh that's a really good question um i mean it's funny. I've been, um, I'm in law school on the side, so I've been studying antitrust. Oh, I'm sorry. And, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm a recovering lawyer, so I, I, I know your pain. <laughs> and I, and oh. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to guru her and just ask like this bizarre question, but I just came to me that 
there's an energy that exists within the context of what you do. And most yeah. people probably don't ask about it. Yeah. So I was thinking about, um, you know, internal decision-making. We talk about products differently, uh, but we have that in our product too. But internally, um, people think that um, people are rational actors, right? Economic theories are based on people making rational decisions and they never do. They don't in buying products. They don't in making internal decisions in companies either. And just to expect that people will is kind of silly. <clears throat> people are, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about different types of people are motivated by different things. They also learn in different ways. And if, you know, some people are in their job, in their professional life, motivated by a desire to be an expert or to prevent failure. I think, unfortunately, at the moment, I'm in the prevent failure mode, right? And it makes everyone think I'm negative all the time. But um, those things are drivers and they affect how you make decisions and how you react to changes. And those are completely I mean, they're rational, they have a rational basis, but they're also not rational. And so I think the key for most people in business, probably in life, is figuring out how to recognize what's irrational and in themselves and in others and figure out how to do good and make good decisions in that context. And it's hard. I struggle with that. I've always struggled with that. So. Joe, you said something really good. Um, so you're obviously a problem solver, but where people mix it up, you're a realistic, critical thinker. And yeah. people get really offended when someone's realistically and a critical thinker because they can have a big dream and big goal. But then if you chunk it down and break down the process, people go, oh, and I see you've got an engineering background, correct? So you have to be a realistic, critical thinker. So when you're in a situation where you're working with someone that's just big picture and you've got to streamline that, what techniques do you use? Because I know a lot of people that are just big picture have trouble with that process, the detailed process. Yeah. And I'm a little of both. Like I'm also in the abstract, uh, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, think stupid things and wild ideas. So I like, I like people to have vision and have a big picture, but then be able to map that. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of management 101 in mapping vision to execution that many companies, I will say many startups and maybe some, some percentage of big companies just simply can't do. And I don't understand why, you know, they're having a big picture. The engineer breaks a problem down into sizable chunks. Right. And so vision is wonderful. I, you know, I'm, I'm often the one with the thousand crazy ideas where someone has to go, no, 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 you know, but I want to see when I'm excited about a vision, I want to see, a, you know, that turned into a plan and the plan turned into action. And that's the me part. That's the realistic. I'm like, break it down into pieces. What are our key objectives? Which ones can we do in the first year? What are other, you know, blah, 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 and break it down. And that's a people thing too. That's doing it with one person doesn't do that. It's a team activity to get everyone to think first to think strategically have a cool vision everyone buy into it and then figure okay now how do we climb that mountain we're going to climb it one step at a time and then how long is it going to take us and and can we can we imagine that we'll be more successful than we've been in the past and and you know go through that process so yeah i, I you know and i think when i'm negative nancy uh as my husband calls me negative nancy um <laughs> you know, when i'm when i'm being negative nancy Lisa doesn't call you a karen yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But when I'm being that way, it's because I'm frustrated by inability to take what I think is an exciting vision and translate it into a plan and reality, you know? You know, it's it's so interesting. When I was 29 uh, in the 90s, I became CEO of Samsung's phone division, and it was very difficult for me. Uh, even though there was a trend to have younger CEOs in the Silicon Valley as we were going through the boom, especially in telecom. Uh, and I had a, a mentor, and her name was uh, Randy Granovetter. Uh, and she was extraordinary. When, I think the first woman to raise over $100 million um, and for the earpiece ear, uh, company. And I'm losing the name of it, but everybody would know it. Anyway, Randy ended up being the CEO of Microsoft. Uh, office small position and just just a legend and unfortunately she actually later in career became my cto and passed away at 65 um but you uh about the same age as as i were a 29 year old ceo of a tech company you've been a c-level executives from the biggest companies in the world uh as well just like randy and you know i want to set the stage because i have three daughters and i talk about you know, equity and inclusion and opportunity. And there was not a lot of inclusion or opportunity for women in tech uh, to be C level positions, let alone a CEO at 29. And I was like searching my mind going, what other women I know besides Randy Grenevetter, uh, who, you know, and she was older than you and I, uh, yeah. were able to do that. What lessons did you learn and take forward with you over the last two decades from being a young woman CEO in a tech company, you know, at 29, because I know how challenging it was for me at 29 as a, you know, a middle, I'm a middle-aged white man. So I had every advantage uh, on my side, even at 29, but it was so difficult. What was it like for you to be that type of executive uh, at such a young age and being a woman? Yeah. Well, first of all, I was only an executive because I made my own company. Had I not made my own thing, I would never have had that chance, right? So, and not um, many, not many women would do that. Even that's what's yeah. So congratulations. Yeah. Well, and by the way, that was a dream of mine from when I was uh, about fifteen years old, and I went to work for a startup, but also was enabled by my husband. Like one person can't do it by themselves in many cases. He he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me till I did what I wanted to do, but was afraid to do. So there's always someone else at least one someone else and many, you know, I also had many mentors, but, um, you know, I think, you know, everybody goes through, uh, evolution in their life. And I think women in my time period have also gone through evolution. So I'm going to tell you a story and then I'll go back to 29 years old. Uh, my daughter is 32 and, um, about when the me too movement happened, she was, you know, a few years younger than 32. She had just graduated. She has a degree from Harvard and another degree from Yale. She's just amazing. And um, she's a school teacher. She had chosen to become a school teacher because it was her passion. And um, she came to me. And schools are actually relatively progressive for women. She came to me at the beginning of the Me Too movement and she said, Mom, it's your fault. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you and all the women who were in your generations, you just you just took it. You put up with it. You didn't say anything. And now, 30 years later, I have to deal with it. And, you know, it's pretty heartbroken by that. She and I are best friends. Sorry. That's and, all right. 
you know, I that caused a big evolution for me. Um, and she was right to some degree. I I survived because I was an engineer and I acted like a guy because I just naturally <laughs> I was like a you know an engineering kind of thinker and and I was in some progressive organizations. I was lucky. I started my career at SRI. And my lab was 50% women because we could artificially do that. And so I didn't think when I was 29, I started my first company. I didn't realize what it was going to be like. I had no idea. I'd been in this bubble. And um, it was tough. You know, people said first, oh, you're too young. You don't understand. You're too inexperienced. And then they made sexist comments and did all kinds of stuff. You know, that's just stuff. And, it, you know, I just pursued. You know, I just kept going. And I focused on my goals and objectives. And I had a lot of people who were also positive and helped me along the way, board members, advisors, friends. Um, and it evolved, you know, the world has gotten a little better, not as much better as I would have liked, but, but definitely better. And um, I evolved also in my approach, but I never really called people out. And starting after my daughter said that to me, I started calling people out. And I'm sorry that it took that long, right? I was for many for many years, and I think a lot of women, you know, if I I'll be an example. I can't change the world, but I'll just be an example. And I was, you know, and I think I still yeah. am, right? And and that's good. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. Um, but I now in hindsight, I wonder. When she said that, I well, it wasn't enough. I have to do more, you know. So. I, I need a comment because I've had the the same thing from a, a different angle, and the fact that one, my mom, who was top of her class, went to Ohio State uh, and was an, an educator, and ended up after forty seven years, you know, being a principal at a, a private school and empowering all these people. But you know, all her children, Ivy Leaguers, and extremely successful, and. Yet one of the most painful things she told me, and I'll try not to choke up, was, you know what my biggest disappointment in life is, is that I look and see the unbelievable success of all the boys who cheated off of me in college. Yeah. <laughs> and we were only supposed to be nurses and teachers. Uh, and she, her, her, her mind, her reality was within the context. And then I said to her, well, my biggest uh, disappointment in myself as a young executive is that I always tried to provide equal opportunities, but I didn't speak up. Like I, I was a leader. You could look at, and my career will speak for itself of being inclusive and providing opportunities. But I will tell you that I witnessed so many things that were wrong and I never said a word. I was a 25-year-old executive and, you know, went to drinking lunches and ended up places, you know, and, and I never said, hey, you know, this is wrong. And I, and I justified it by saying, well, I'm a leader and, and I always give equal opportunity no matter what color, shape, size, religion, or, or gender. And I, and I always have. But there comes a point that I'm really disappointed that I've been complicit because I didn't speak up. Yeah. Or, you know, it's maybe it's not we're complicit, but so much that we didn't leverage yeah. more than our own. So I've told this story before. I apologize. But um, I had a board member, my first public company when I was 38 years old, and I was the CEO of a public company and I was grossly unprepared for that. I feel you. <laughs> 
they had all my board members had private jets, you know, and they all come, come to board meetings and compare the size of their jets. And um, one now of them, they, now they compare the size of their rockets. Yeah, exactly. You know, they would if this guy was still alive, you'd have a rocket. I'm telling you. And one of them looked peculiar in its shape. Did you notice that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. That one rocket was kind of weird. <laughs> so, well, this board member is a billionaire and had his own jet, blah, 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 blah. Took me to lunch one time right on Sand Hill Road, 3000 Sand Hill Road. There's a golf cart. There's a, a, a country club there that they all belong to. Well, that country club in 92, this was in 2000, did not accept women in the dining room. In 2000 on Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto, he takes me to lunch to this place where we can't sit in the dining room because he never occurred to him to even notice that women aren't allowed in that dining room takes me there. Oh, gosh, how silly. So we had to sit outside by the swimming pool that's in the middle of summer. And there's like all these people running around with bikinis and stuff. And we had our business meeting. And like, <laughs> I didn't say anything to this guy because it wouldn't have mattered. Like, but that's how unaware many people are, you know, and that that really that was probably the part that really scared me the most was how here's this guy's got a billion dollars, he could really make a difference in the world, you can't even figure out who's allowed at lunch before he makes a reservation, you know, yeah. I, I've been to come country clubs later than 2000 that didn't allow people of color or women. And yeah. the the I was a guest and the person looked at a sign and said, Oh, this is terrible. They don't allow you to use cell phones. And I was like, like what world? Dude, what world am I living in? Uh, right. but I think I think it's 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 very important. Um, and to have just such an extraordinary business that you have now, you know, you guys have what hundred million users and what you're doing as a capacity of providing value as well as a company. But I think it's really important. I wanted people to see. What a standout executive you are and have been. And we're not perfect. You know, we're just, Michael knows as he has led the way that when we can illuminate the fact that, hey, we're doing our best uh, and we can make excuses, but I'll take accountability that I'm not perfect. But right. hopefully I can be a milestone for white middle-aged men to come that we have to be more aware and speak up. And you can be a milestone as well for my daughter's uh, about how and what we can do if we believe in what's possible. Uh, obviously, Fusion's extraordinary. Thank you so much for allowing us to share these personal things that I think are far more important. Um, and people can find you at fusion.com. Anywhere yep. else people can reach out to you, though, Joan? Uh, let's see. I'm uh, on Twitter. I'm at Varbetz, V-A-R-B-E-T-Z. <laughs> so that's a good way to find me. Um, you know, and LinkedIn and elsewhere. So, yep. Awesome. Well, thank you for being a hero. Thank you for your service and please come back and join us. Thank you. Awesome. Have a good day. Thank you, Joan. Joan Rabitz, yeah. she's the COO of Fusion, incredible company. I know I didn't get as deep into the company side of it, uh, but Res Ipsiloquer, she's in night school for law school. That means that which speaks for itself. Any company that has an executive like her is absolutely the kind of company I want to do business with. All right. Speaking of doing business with, uh, we have the partner at Sweat Equity Ventures, Anthony Klein. Welcome to Office Hours. Hey, David, Mike. Thanks for having me. I was just listening to, to Joan's testimony here. It was really powerful stuff. I was checking out the company and her background. I mean, whoa. 
it's crazy, right? Well, yeah. uh, obviously, Sweat Equity Ventures, your model is a little bit different. And I love the fact that you have this value accelerator. So I was hoping you could explain the nuances of what you guys do comparatively to a traditional VC. Yeah, the, the bottom line is that we help companies accelerate uh, their growth. So we do the things that startups desperately need. We noticed in the venture capital world today, most of the startups that venture capital firms want to be in, they're not really hurting for capital. And if you were to go anywhere outside of Silicon Valley, that might sound crazy. But you know, the most highly contested startups, the ones that we all desperately want to be in as investors, they're usually trying to tell venture capital firms to buzz off and focus on what they need to do, which is build their product and add more value to their to their users, the consumer. So we built the model around providing great engineering talent. We've got you know several staff to principal level engineers that write code, they ship product, they, they help uh, scope out something that's really gonna change the trajectory of the company. We help with go to market, anything that's gonna drive revenue for the business. And then we help with talent acquisition and HR. And if you've heard the stories in the Valley right now or anywhere in tech, you know the war for talent continues to rage on. It's probably crazier now than it's ever been. And we, we tend to specialize there. Oh, awesome. So with so many startups that don't make it, you know, it's like, where where is that point where people have to remove their ego and, and then get someone like you to come in and really teach them to accelerate? Do you know what I mean? Because so many people think they know and then like most startups, they go under. So where, yeah. where, when you're dealing with someone, how do you really make someone understand that they need help? It's, it's a good question, Mike. Um, hopefully really early on, and that tends to be where we meet most of our founders is when they have an idea. So we've done about seven or eight formation or incubation projects over the last 24 months. The firm's young. We're only two and a half years old at this point. And we're about two thirds of the way through the first fund and hopefully raising our second fund very soon. But we've had a lot of founders who are pretty seasoned. Um, they're startup veterans. They've done this two, three times around. They've been execs before. And so they really know the pain that is involved in building a company and building a team. So we haven't had to do a lot of convincing there. It's typically the first time founders that really don't have the battle scars that maybe come in with a little bit more bravado, thinking that they can do it on their own, especially those that came from marquee companies before where a lot of these things are solved for them or they have a great network around them. Um, and it's a little bit harder to convince those folks that they're gonna need support um, but man, when it comes around, they start to feel the pain or they've exhausted their network and the resources that are immediately available to them, then they really do feel it. And that's when the conversations pick back up. And is there any data right now? I mean, we talked about compassion having a 1400% increase in productivity and revenue when we were talking to the head of mindfulness at LinkedIn. You know, I've been for years talking about engagement and uh, because engagement rates are so low, you know, and to find employees that engage and have situational knowledge can exponentially increase shareholder value, increase statistical chances of success, uh, which I think is directly aligned with your accelerator and your philosophy at Sweat Equity. Um, have you seen any data or numbers about being able to find talent that not only, you know, has the situational knowledge or experience, which can be difficult, because there's only so many people, especially with technology moving so fast, that have that situational knowledge experience. But I think 
you know, one of the components that I look for in talent is engagement. You know, people that have the gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, and the inspiration to, to learn that stuff quickly that can set my course of my collective consciousness, my business to have a collective desire that we must be what we can be. And that to me, you know, I've never seen any data on how we determine talent by engagement, not just situational knowledge or experience. I, I don't think we're great at measuring engagement really early on in a startup. I think we're, we're looking at, you know, what of our user acquisition numbers, how fast are we shipping product? Um, you kind of know, cause everybody's like in such close proximity to each other. When you start getting into hundred people, 200 people, things start to change quite a bit. Um, I truly believe your culture is built in the first, you know, 10 to 20 people at the organization. There, there's an old, you know, euphemism about the 10 X engineer. Uh, it's kind of what we say. You find that one engineer that can do the job of 10. And I think in a lot of cases, you have people that have the right experience that have built products to scale that have seen a lot of change in a short amount of time. And they know where the pitfalls are that most startups find themselves in. And they can help you navigate that a lot faster than if you were to have somebody who just doesn't have, again, those battle scars, right? Or they haven't been exposed to the right technology. So I think there's certainly those people out there. I think you have to work your ass off to try to get them in early and often. And I think you'll see that they're very engaged at that stage, especially folks that maybe don't have or have a lot to lose, right? They've made it in their career and they're going to take a pretty big risk to leave, you know, a public fang company where they're making crazy amounts of money to come join your no-name startup that's in stealth mode. And, you know, it's not... It's not like it used to be where you're paying 75, 80K a year. People are getting paid a little bit more. But again, the risks are pretty hard or pretty, pretty real for them. So, look, if you can find those people in the beginning and you've got the right motivations and everybody's aligned and they know what they're going for, then engagement is going to be high. But it's inevitable that as you start to scale, you get to that you know 100 person number that you're going to see people that just aren't as bought in. As they used to and i've seen that a couple times my first company abstract we went from one to 600 people in about four years and it was wild i made some of my best friends there we we're in each other's weddings i'm going to a wedding this weekend with a bunch of those people and i'm stoked to see everyone um and then at stripe i, I joined stripe at like 200 250 people and it was it was awesome place right and then we scaled to about 2,000 people in three years right it's just crazy but you see just different attitudes about it at like each stage of the company. Um, and it's inevitable, like those people still add a lot of value, but maybe they're not adding the same amount of value as that initial cohort of people that you brought in. Wow. I, I love that you said the culture from the first 20 people. I think that's so, so important to al align those values and core values and make sure everyone on the starting crew is like that. I love that because it's true because once that once you build, if the foundation isn't there, <laughs> you're in trouble the virus yeah. spreads and the negativity spreads and it just eats you from the inside and it gets too big that you can't control it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, founders got to spend a lot of time uh, helping people understand what the mission is, what you're driving for, what each organization and the company does, what each department does, what each team does, what each individual does. And you, you got to line those things up and truly be a team that way. And my job, you know, now is with these early stage startups in particular with the founders, like, feeling out what the vibe and the energy is, right? We, we've got a bunch of people that can do the job on paper, but if they don't click, if they're just not seeing each other eye to eye and they don't have the same passions, then it's just not gonna work. And it can be devastating 
for a company. I'd much rather see a company wait, you know, months and months to hire the right person than make the bad, the wrong hire. Yeah. And that's a tough decision when you need to do business and you have investors up your uh, backside yeah. wanting like, how come you haven't scaled? And they do go by straight numbers sometimes of how many people you've hired and where you are opening and what's going on. But you've worked with some of the biggest and the best. Uh, what should people look for uh, on the talent side, you know, when they're actually being hired? Uh, you know, what are they looking for from the 20 or from the 10 or from the founders? Uh, because I think a lot of times the fit works because the person has managed the expectations of the person being hired as much as the people hiring have found the right candidate. Yeah, no, it's a good question. You don't get asked that much. You usually get asked like, you know, what should I be looking for in a founder type or I'm sorry, what should I be looking for in a candidate and not the founder? Look, I think, you know, they got to be a great storyteller. They got to know where they're going. Uh, they need to be rigorous. They need to know the details, right? So if you can get into how something works and why it works this way, why it doesn't work the other way, then you can see that they have this level of obsession. I, I think, you know, to be a founder, sometimes you, you got to have a big vision. You also got to be a little bit delusional sometimes because it's just a crazy idea to go start a company, right? It's going to take a lot out of you and they got to have energy, right? Um, but the other thing too is just like how do they treat everybody you know go out to dinner with them see how they treat the server right you know um you know how do they treat the people that they meet on the street like see if that's that's something that you can vibe with right um you know i, th I think you got to get to know the the founder on a personal level um to the best best of your ability and then you got to see you know hey does this thing that i'm about to sign up for um really makes sense in like the overall arc of this person's career, right? What did they do before this? Like what prepared them to build this company? Why are they well suited to build this company? Are they gonna be able to recruit the right people to help us build this organization? And, you know, can I, can I trust that this person I'm gonna spend, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week with is gonna have my back and, you know, the rest of the company's back and, and do the right thing over and over again. And look, interviews kind of stink for that right? They, they kind of suck in general, right? It's like 45 minutes to an hour to like impress upon somebody your entire life's work and tell them why you should join a company. Um, so you got to try to get out of that paradigm as much as possible and, you know, do your, do your homework. Yeah, no, and you've done a great job. And I think you're on the pulse of what makes a team successful, finding the people that can be collective in their consciousness to have a desire that they must be what they can be and build a culture that's aligned with, or at least synergistic to what's going to do well there. And you've been doing it for a long time and accelerating in the most pr important asset of all companies, the people. So appreciate you, Anthony. People can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Uh, where's the best place that they should reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm on there quite a bit now. Uh, I don't have much of a Twitter presence. I should probably change that. But thanks, guys, for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Oh, very Thank insightful you. and uh, totally inspired by what you do. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Anthony guys. Klein, partner at Sweat Equity Ventures, really concerned about accelerating business through talent uh, and doing an incredible job. Three incredible guests, Mikey boy. I love your T-shirt. Old school kiss. That's it. And oh, look at the pills of thrills right there. It's weird <laughs> Wednesday. It's weird Wednesday. By the way, Mikey, I got to go through the entire gift that you gave me for office hours. I want to give you a public thank you, including the macaroons that were included in my uh, gift there. So thank you very much. Everything you gave me was unhealthy. I appreciate it. 
I will eat it in moderation, drink it in more moderation, and I'll be kind to my future self. What's your takeaway for the day? Um, you know, you, you, you said some pretty special things. People need to stand up. Uh, I actually had to leave acting school back in the day because a teacher took advantage of a student and we were out one night and I had to make a decision. And if I didn't make that decision, I wouldn't have won my green card in the lottery because I went and got a job in a clothing store and the universe paid me back. And I think it's what you said was really important that we need to step up and help people if we see there's injustice in the world and not just be a bystander and say someone else will do it. I think it's our job to stand up, step up, like you said, and and do the right thing. So my takeaway is, you know, be of service, really help people. And if you think you need to step in and do it, be brave enough to do it. Yeah, my, my takeaway was about engagement. Uh, Scott, right? Like he's so engaged in the business. Like I can't still even imagine going up to, you know, Jeff at LinkedIn and saying, hey, I want to be a mindfulness executive, like at that company, you know? And then, you know, Joan is so engaged in what she's doing and the emotional story of, of what and truly how, and, you know, for someone in her position that probably has done more for women executives than most women on earth to still feel that emotional about, I could have done more. I feel the same way. You know, I'm on a mission to empower over a billion people to be happy. And, you know, I disappoint myself regularly and try to learn the lessons from that disappointment. Um, and of course, Anthony was right on the pulse of engagement and, you know, finding the right people, 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 and the six inches between their ears really make the people of how they see things. And when people see things the same way and give meaning to what they see in the right way and speak up and are engaged and care and have a desire to be what they must be, unbelievable, extraordinary, extraordinary things occur. And that's what I want for everyone to make a lot of money, help a lot of people have a lot of fun. Like Mikey and I do, we may be a little bit weird, a little bit fun on Wednesdays, check out diamond life fuel. I've been taking it every morning. It's incredible. Check out Mike diamond himself. I follow him flex on Mike says Keaton. Uh, I just want to say thank you again for the wonderful gifts. Thank your wife, Kim, for the wonderful gifts and showing up for us and giving us such great love and, and, uh, and honoring us. So we look forward to going out with you guys again, the incredible Mike diamond diamond life fuel. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you next Wednesday on love you, mate. office hours. There it is right from the set of the TV show. Anyway, everyone, We'll be here tomorrow on Office Hours. We got a new TV show in October, Office Hours. It's Office Hours, Office Hours, Office Hours. But nothing changes here about one thing. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll catch you tomorrow. Thanks so much.